why don't we introduce ourselves? Why don't you start? Okay. Hi, my name is Victoria Long, and I am the legal intern component of the Russell Brinsfield Internship this summer. I'm about to start my second year of law school at the University of Maryland Carey School of Law in Baltimore. And I'm Michael Marinelli. I'm the environmental science intern for the Hughes Center in ALEI. I am pursuing an environmental science and English double degree at the University of Maryland College Park, and I'm a rising junior. And so it is July 31st right now. How long ago did we start? We started June 3rd. Yes. So this is our ninth week. And next week is your last day on next Friday. Yes. yes. Right? Yeah. So where did the time go? That's the real question. That's a good question. Because it, was, cause it must have been flying with all the fun you had this summer. I'm oh, assuming. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How would you characterize the projects that we had this summer for you? I would say it was a little bit of everything. Um, it was, if I had to choose one thing, I would say it was probably research. Uh, every project involved at least some degree of research, but there was a lot of other stuff involved. Um, and when we say research, uh, particularly, yeah, how, what do you mean? Policy research. So we would, we would take a look at uh, either what Maryland laws exist and what other state laws exist and kind of taking a look at what varies between them and what could be implemented in Maryland that other states have. We saw that with the oyster aquaculture and with the Virginia best management practice. Those are two of our main projects that we were working on. Mm -hmm. So let's get into uh, the best management practice one. Uh, What's the issue behind that? Or why did that come up as a project for y'all this summer? Sure. So that came up a lot to do with the watershed implementation program Mm -hmm. or practice plan plan yeah the watershed implementation plan or the whip Uh uh, that mda is working on currently they're in phase three so one of the problems or one of the concerns with the whip is getting farmers to implement these best management practices on their farm that's going to help with bay cleanup so virginia has had this plan for about 20 years that a lot of people were not aware of that is a Virginia Best Management Tax Credit Program. And the way that works is similar to the cost share program, which gives farmers money to put these best management practices on their farm. This just offers another incentive to put these best management practices on on their farms. And particularly in Virginia, it's really good with the Mennonite community because they don't take government aid. So the huh. guy who we talked to from Virginia said it's pretty popular with that community. And it's also really popular when the cost share program doesn't get the funding as much as it would in one year to the next. Sure. Did, did you uh, look into how they reached out to these communities? How do you reach out to a Mennonite community community? Uh, that's a great question. Yeah. We, we don't yeah. actually know. We were speaking with one guy on the phone from Virginia, and he, he just happened to mention that. So uh, that's definitely something that's interesting of, like, how do you reach out to the people who don't necessarily want something to do with you? Well, or, I, don't, I don't know about that. I mean, it's like you do the, you, you do the work, but mm-hmm. uh, on, on the back end, they, you know, um, then how do you get the information right. out there? Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. difficult. But it was interesting. And so we presented it to the Maryland Department of Agriculture just as another option for incentivizing farmers to putting these best management practices and also to sure. reach WIP goals for phase three. Sure. So this is like beyond what they're, they've already implemented. Yeah. Right. Yes. Is there, is there a, uh, so there's no tax credit currently, but there's a cost share program in Maryland, right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Uh, so uh, I guess 
let's go to the other one. You mentioned policy for oyster theft. Yeah, yeah. So Maryland is currently having a pretty big problem with oyster aquaculture theft. Uh, oyster aquaculture is the growing and harvesting of oysters, not just harvesting from the bay, but actually growing them yourself. So there's a big problem with on leased land. Other oyster harvesters are actually going like in the dead of night and collecting tens of thousands of dollars worth of oysters and then selling them to buyers who would then sell them to regular consumers. So they're they're like stealing uh, oysters grown in leased water columns. Exactly. Okay. Yes. So we we took a look at what other state laws exist uh, and we saw what Maryland doesn't have and we kind of uh, and we we were wondering how can Mar- what can Maryland implement that other states have to help address this problem. And so some of the main problems were not really prosecuting the, those who are buying the stolen oysters. And so if we can prosecute those who are actually buying the oysters because they know that they're buying stolen oysters, mm. that can really help mitigate that problem. And also the taking of the suspension or the revocation of an oyster harvester's license can be really effective. Taking their boat, taking their dredge as well, the, the, the tools and machinery needed to actually steal the oysters or harvest oysters. Those those two options are really great deterrents and have been supported so far in what we've discussed with others. Did you work with anybody to develop these? Yeah, so last year's interns uh, started this project and started doing the research, and we kind of picked up where they left off. Mm-hmm. The, they, got, they learned about the project from oyster other oyster harvesters and from DNR police and from some P- other uh, DNR staff at the Oyster Aquaculture uh, Coordinating Council, and... So we picked up where they left off, and we presented what we'd found so far to the uh, Aquaculture Coordinating Council this past, uh, last week or the week before, mm-hmm. and we spoke with them, and they gave us some feedback. They liked they liked what we had to say. The DNR police uh, really supports the idea of like taking uh, the dredges and taking the boats, and they were really supportive of the also potentially having like a, a specific circuit rider, some people who in the uh, judges and lawyers specifically appointed to address uh, aquaculture theft huh. because another problem can be uh, having it localized isn't always the most efficient or effective way of handling these. Huh. Uh, why, is, why is that? Uh, it's a little bit of education problems of not necessarily knowing everything. Sure. Um, sure but then sure. there's also, there can also be problems arising where judges know, if, it, if it's localized, the judges know those who are breaking the law uh-huh. and they say, oh, He's a good kid. I'm going to give him a $400 sure. fine. Or sometimes yeah. they can't even afford to pay in the first place, and so there's not, uh, it's not handled mm. uh, sufficiently. Ah. So having someone else who doesn't necessarily know those who are breaking the law, can it, it removes that, that fam- familiarity and that bias in it, and it can be a little bit more effective. Yeah, I could see that. Um, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. So I guess... Out of those two, I out of those two things, I saw a theme, and I was looking to other states to see, uh, you know, if I guess in both cases, can't uh, excuse me, in both cases, it was Virginia, was it, was it, or was it? Uh, so for the for the BMP, it was Virginia. We yeah. took a look at Virginia for the oyster aquaculture, but we took a lot a look at a ton of other states. Yeah. So almost just about every state on the East Coast. We looked at Texas. We looked at California. We even looked at Australia a little bit because no New South Wales is really popular for oyster aquaculture. Actually, a lot of the uh, the machine, like not machinery, but a lot of the um, the ne- like the the actual 
tools and stuff that hold the oysters themselves, the cages, they are actually manufactured in Australia. Huh. So New South Wales has a whole big program, and they're really big on, they have a ton of signs posted. So we took a look at how posting of signs can be another effective way of showing huh. that this is a known and clearly marked location that you cannot steal from, because yeah. oftentimes another problem that ar- would arise was uh, they w- harvesters who were stealing would cut the clearly marked buoys so that it would look like it wasn't necessarily uh, a least least land right. or at least uh, least water column. Right. Yeah. So and actually, on that point too, we did really del- dive into Maryland's law itself because there is a portion of the law that gives you a criminal a potential to prosecute criminally. There's a portion of the law where if you're stealing oysters from a clearly marked area with the signage or buoys, as Michael was just saying, mm-hmm. you can then prosecute, if you can even catch the thief, you can prosecute them criminally under a Maryland criminal statute. But it's interesting because that Maryland criminal statute is for property theft, and it also covers people who buy clearly stolen property. But that portion of the criminal statute does not apply to buyers of illegally Huh. harvested oysters. So uh-huh. if buyers are buying oysters in the middle of summer when it's clearly not oyster season, it's pretty obvious that they're stolen, but they're not sure. prosecuted criminally. So we brought that to the attention of the ACC as well. So we did compare other state laws, but we were also like, here's a big discrepancy in the Maryland law that very could easily be amended since it's already there for people who are stealing the oysters. We could also extend it to people who are buying these illegally harvested oysters as well. Do you think... Uh, policy is going to come out of it i mean i i guess it's speculation mm-hmm. you know i hope so <laughs> yeah um based on our present uh the reaction to our presentation at the acc i'm hopeful based they were very they seemed very optimistic um they really liked what we had to say and they agreed with just about everything that we were saying nice. um and they seem to want to go forward with this well, it's got to be validating yeah absolutely it's yeah. cool to have a it feels like there's a physical manifestation of the work that we've put in yeah um it's a lot of times there's a, there's like a stereotype of interns just kind of helping out and just kind of doing random things but we sure. actually have a project that we're fully completing and mm-hmm. we can print out a copy of this uh of the of the final draft and two years down the line we can take a look at it and show it to people hand it to people and say we made this and this potentially hopefully in two years we could say like and this changed helped change some maryland laws and that's change the cool. way they were used yeah, yeah. that cool. happened in the first year's for summer interns yeah. three years ago, they did something with SAV and submerged, uh, sorry, submerged aquatic, aquatic vegetation. vegetation. Yeah. And that I think changed policy eventually too. Yeah. That's good. That's great. I mean, uh, it's, you know, you know, a lot of young people don't get that opportunity to affect that sort of change through their own work. Right. Yeah, I think that's a valuable experience. Um, so I guess looking at the, your, your other projects this summer, uh, let's move. So we've talked a lot right now about, um, oyster aquaculture, which isn't something typically the Hugh Center is involved in. Hugh Center's, you know, while it's an environment, environmentally important, uh, we focus on a lot of agricultural and, uh, forestry research. So, uh, let's pivot to ag real quick. Um, I'm, I'm looking at the little short list here and see the direct marketing guide. What's, What's this? Why don't we start from the top? Yeah, so the direct marketing guide um, was a project that ALEI, sorry, Agricultural Law Education Initiative, yes, yes. Um, which is a 
another organization that's housed here at the Harry R. Hughes Center, which we're also the interns well, for. Well, okay. So, um, so no. well, um, yeah, so the Ag Law Education Initiative is an affiliate of the University of Maryland um, School of Law, and the Hughes Center is also an affiliate of, but of the College of Ag and Natural Resources. So each summer, this is the third summer in a row, I guess I probably should have explained this at the very, like, <laughs> beginning, like 15 minutes in, but anyway, each summer... Uh, we have the Hughes Center and the Ag Law Education Initiative partners up and gets two interns. One is a law student, that's Victoria this year, and the other one is uh, from the College of Ag and Natural Resources, and that's uh, Michael this year. So um, we keep the uh, interns in uh, a building on campus and several times a week, Sarah Everhart, who uh, is with the Ag Law Education Initiative and who, um, I guess, is your keeper for, yes. Yes. sort of, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is is the keeper partner. Uh, she hangs out on campus here at the Y Research and Education Center uh, occasionally. So, sorry, I, I sidetracked. Yeah, no. So actually, it's good because so we're with ALEI. We're also with the Hughes. Whoop, yeah, it's good. The, <laughs> the Hughes Center, um, and this project for the Legal Guide to Direct Marketing sort of affects both programs. So ALEI wanted to create a legal guide for producers so they understand their risks and liabilities when entering into a direct marketing relationship. And the Hughes Center also wanted to work on this because it directly relates to the food shed assessment and also adds to the overall goal to help producers increase availability to the market. Mm -hmm. um, so we started this legal guide to direct marketing by looking at other states' legal guides to direct marketing, similar there we go. fashion. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, it's good to get input on anything before, you know, you don't want to yeah. go into an issue blindly. Yeah. Absolutely. And it was good too, because we looked at these different guides and saw what kept coming up throughout these different mm -hmm. states and created a base outline of just like, these are general risks that happen when you go into a direct marketing relationship, whether that be a roadside stand, a farmer's market, or a restaurant that's really involved in the farm to table movement. Mm -hmm. um, so then we took that base outline and then added Maryland specific risks and liabilities. So anything from county by county licensing and regulation to uh, we also did federal legal framework. And then Michael and I actually wrote a couple of sections in the direct marketing guide. Um, I was pretty excited because I got to use my intro to contracts class and write the, <laughs> why having a written contract is so important and it covers yeah. all the risks that might be involved. Neat. Yeah. So what's uh, the, the, the product? Where can, you, where can people find that? Is that on the Ag Law website? It's not published it? yet. It's not published yet? Yeah. What's, I think it's going to be plan? published... I'm not really sure when it's going to be published. I want to say by the end of the year, but it will be on the Ag Law. Okay. And it will be on the Heath Center website, too, yeah. at some point. Um, cool. Uh, looking at other ag things, uh, what is this urban ag project that I see in here? Uh, can anyone do an overview of that? Yeah. Um, so this was something that the Office of Sustainability in Baltimore reached out to Sarah and us about. Mm. Um Baltimore has an urban agriculture tax incentive 
similar to the best management tax credit, where they will give a break in property tax to people who use their urban plots of land for agriculture. Uh But the problem with the Baltimore program is that it's only been applicable to one person because the land has to be 100% used for agriculture. So if you have a residence on the land, you're can't apply for this tax credit. Hmm. So they wanted us to, again, look into other states and other cities to see what what they have done to see if there's a better option. So what did we find? So we found, actually, that Washington, D.C. has a similar program, and they give a 90% tax credit break to people who use a portion of their land for urban agriculture, but you only get the break for that portion. So if you have your house, you won't uh-huh. get the property tax break for whatever land the house is on. And sure. Yeah, and then Michael found some cool laws about this, too. Yeah, as I was just doing research into the tax credit, I, I ended up doing kind of general research and just getting a better sense of urban ag in different areas. So I saw Montgomery County had one, but I, I took a look, I took a long, deep dive into, into Detroit because Detroit had been a pioneer in urban agriculture since uh, urban agriculture kind of started to become a thing. Mm-hmm. And so I took, a, I took a deep dive in there, and I was trying to really find a lot of information. I, co- I actually couldn't find anything about a tax credit in Detroit, which was kind of disappointing, um, but it still is successful. Uh, and it was really, it was really cool to just kind of like learn about how, uh, urban agriculture has evolved in Detroit, uh, kind of taking advantage of the ways that people break the law to follow huh. the law. One of the, it's totally unrelated to the tax credit, but they dog fighting is obviously illegal, but they're really good at being quiet about it because if you're, if you're loud, uh, in a city, uh, with dogs, they can, Police can obviously tell that you're dogfighting. And so the, they're, they're using a lot of those techniques that dogfighters use with their animals, which is really interesting. Huh. And, and you never would have thought about it, but it's a really innovative with their, way. With, with their livestock? Yeah. So their goats and their uh, chickens and things like that. It's a way to yeah, keep it quiet. Yeah, <laughs> you wouldn't think about that. Right, wow. right. Wow. Turn a bad thing into a good thing. Yeah. Talk about that. And uh, I took a look at Long Beach in... Uh, California, and one of the things that Long Beach has is actually a fine for landowners who do not want their land used for urban agriculture. One of the problems that arises in uh, with with un, with vacant land is landowners don't want to commit to the five. California has like a five year uh, commitment for urban agriculture, and so that can the landowners who own vacant land don't want to commit to five years of urban ag because. What if a developer comes along sure. and they can actually make money off this land? Sure. So they leave it vacant, but then that ends up uh, causing pollution and crime problems. And so the city actually charges, I believe it was $53 per month to those who own the vacant land to try to incentivize them to actually uh, not just leave this land vacant in the hopes of getting it developed. Huh. So. Wow. Wow. I guess there are discussions about whether that's appropriate or not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how popular it is, but it's definitely an interesting... A uh, little tidbit. It is that I one found. approach. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> so, um, so what comes of what? What becomes of that? So we're gonna send our research from the different states and cities to the Office of Sustainability, mm-hmm. and then the Environmental Law Clinic, actually, that I'm gonna be involved in at the University of Maryland this fall, is taking on a similar project. So I'll probably take some of this Great. research there, and I think they're working. I want to say with the Farm Bureau or something along those lines. Mm. So not, not with the Office of Sustainability, but another client that's going to be working with this urban agriculture and trying to find tax incentives and great. ways to regulate it. Great. Yeah. So you already sort of did the groundwork. Yeah. You're welcome. I know. It's great. <laughs> I'm going in totally prepared, hopefully. 
and then, uh, so uh, one other thing, well, there's two other things, I think, with ag, if I'm looking at this list right. You followed up with uh, last year and the year before the interns worked on uh, what's called a conservation leasing guide, uh, and it's basically outlines all the benefits for um, farmers and landowners to one have a contract for leased farmland uh, and just the benefits of at the basic level of having a lease contract and uh, the benefits of building in environmental practices for both parties into those contracts. So that guide was finalized and published in 2018 and we held several workshops since then. What did you to do this summer for that? Yeah, so this is a long-term, the conservation leasing is a long-term project. And like you said, all the other interns are kind of like doing their part in their time. Mm -hmm. So we are kind of doing our part of whatever is applicable for this summer. Mm -hmm. So one of the things is the six-month follow-up for the workshops. So we went and we made a spreadsheet of all of the attendees of all the workshops. I think there was four or five workshops. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was about 130 names or so in total. And... We made, a, we made a spreadsheet of everyone who attended, and then we, in, in the six-month, there was a six-month follow-up survey that was sent to everybody who attended to see if they got more farm owners and more landowners actually talking to other farm own, farmers, talking to other landowners to see if they can implement these conservation practices uh, and implement them into their lease. And so we're, we, I went through, or Tori and I went through, and we took a look at uh, what they said and filled it filled out according to their to what they what they answered in the survey we we filled out the spreadsheet and then we actually made a bunch of phone calls to those who filled out the surveys that's a lot um, of groundwork yeah <laughs> it, it was it was a it was a task because we had to start from the beginning of just creating the spreadsheet itself yeah so we had to figure out exactly what we needed to put in and what what we, what we didn't want to include um, so that took some time but it's always better to include to include stuff just to be safe, even if you're not positive, yeah. it's necessary. But that was that was really interesting. Uh, um, so we we'd we'd been making a lot of phone calls to people to get more uh, specific information of how many farmers they talked to or how many landowners they talked to, because mm -hmm. a lot of people didn't necessarily answer exact stuff in the survey. Um, and getting them to start using like an online reporting tool to so that we don't have to make a call every time a new yeah. uh, survey goes out because there will be more surveys in the future. Yeah. Because um, this is a long term, yeah. a long term thing. So I I can't remember if it's like a nine month and then a twelve month or something like that. But there's going to be more surveys. So we kind of laid the groundwork for that um, to get them to fill out the online reporting tool, and we're going to start making calls to those who haven't just to start like encouraging mm -hmm. people to yeah. start reaching out to see if anybody has started a make some change and it's really cool that we've already seen people considering putting stuff into their leases and actually starting to implement best management practices That's on great. their land already yeah. in just that six month there was one span. guy who's talked to three different people who have already amended their lease i think so yeah. that, was, way. that was cool yeah. to say yeah it's, it's working <laughs> yeah. right see it's working <laughs> um so then there's one last ag project I see on here, and that's uh, – and I, I knew about this. So you came up with recommendations from – was it the food shed assessment? Or what, what was it for the MD – for MDAs? The strategic plan? Yeah, so the mm -hmm. Department of Agriculture uh, from Maryland is updating its strategic plan. And in the last legislative session, 2019, uh, 
there was language, I believe, in the budget bill that has the Department of Agriculture in consultation with the Hughes Center um, develop a strategic plan. And um, so uh, for Maryland agriculture. So I pretty I think this was done um, to gain um, to build in recommendations from a report we're release we're releasing soon uh, called the Chesapeake Food Shed Assessment. Um, and that focuses the food shed assessment focuses on how to essentially bolster the regional food economy and the regional food system. Um, and so, so how did, what's, how do you even start? I, that was a big report. I've read it. I had, I've had to read it mm-hmm. uh, a number of times. Right. Uh, so where did you, where did you start and what recommendations did you give to the state? Yeah, so we were we were given uh, three different reports. The so the twenty nineteen food shed report, and then in, in addition the future of sustainable farming and forestry in Maryland, and lastly health, safety, and welfare, a report okay. on the factors that favor or hinder the flow of local food in the Chesapeake Bay region. Yeah. And so we took a look at those three, and we had four different categories that we were asked to take a look at. Um, I think it, I believe it was farmer demographics, consumer information, nutrient regulation and program supporting agriculture. And so we literally read through these three uh, front to back. We kind of split them up, and um, we just we, we kind of chugged through them, taking a look for anything that we could find that related to these three, and we created like a little spreadsheet report mm-hmm. of what we would either include a data or the quote or whatever information that we found. We would include the page number, obviously, so that uh, Julie Oberg, who we were helping out with this, who is the deputy secretary of the MDA mm-hmm. um, to make her life a little easier so she could find exactly what we were talking about and where it is in the, in the reports because these are some big reports. Yes. And uh, so with that, then we kind of discussed sometimes the quotes or the information didn't readily, wasn't easily obvious of why it's related. So we had mm-hmm. a little like analysis or relevance or importance section so that we could talk a little bit about it of why it may be helpful or useful for her. Yeah. So, there were, so did she end up using any of the what you sent over. I guess you don't really know until you see this. Yeah. <laughs> I think she may have used part of it, but Nancy Nunn was saying something along the lines of them hiring an independent contractor to yeah. help with the strategic plan. So I'm not really mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, I guess we don't know until where it, that landed. Yeah. I know that they're uh, going around the state and holding several meetings this upcoming month uh, about it, similar to how they do for the watershed implementation plans. So I guess we'll find out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Stay tuned. So um, let's pivot one last time um, to forestry, which is the other part of the Hughes Center's work and mission. So um, now, I know you worked with Craig Highfield from Alliance for the Bay, but someone explain to me what forest mitigation banking is and why it's such a confusing title. Sure. So forestry mitigation banking is basically when a developer clears some land uh, and that includes uh, clearing land for development, and that includes clearing some trees. Sure. They need to replant the trees somewhere else. They need to replant the trees, but they can't always replant the trees in that area that they're clearing. So they can enter. Uh, they can basically like buy some credits for another area in the county because the county will have a kind of a bank of all of these different places, priority and non-priority areas that you can uh, re- have those trees replanted somewhere else, so that the number of trees in the county doesn't actually change. Mm-hmm. Although the the location of the trees obviously would be changing. Sure. So you can the developers can buy into that and have it. Uh, they can they can buy into 
the, the, the banking and the credits and have them planted somewhere else. And so we, we were helping Craig Highfield get a sense of how every county handles it because it's a completely different uh, method in every county. So we helped kind yeah. of create a spreadsheet of the, the variation within it, within every county, taking a look at the different eligibility criteria because that varies for every county. There's a de- decent amount of overlap. Um, a lot of them had the same probably four or five criteria, but then they all had their own few different huh. criteria. Huh. Um, and so then we were also taking... We also... The Harry R. Hughes Center was tasked by a Senate Bill 729 mm-hmm. uh, this past year, I believe. Yep. And it was uh, to create a technical study and regarding uh, forestry in Maryland. Yeah, and forest cover and... Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so we asked a couple questions related to that. Um, I can't remember them off the top of my head, but do you remember, Tori? Yeah, so... it. This project sort of had a twofold goal. The part of the goal was to get the information for the Senate bill for the Hughes Center, and the other part was to increase stakeholder understanding of forest mitigation banking. So if a farmer has forested land, how he can best utilize it Mm. and get money for this forested land that isn't being used for produce or any other sort of agriculture he might have on his land. Sure. So part of that chart was getting the criteria so if a stakeholder who has forested land wanted to enroll in this banking program, they could see what the criteria was and potentially enroll this land. And then the other half of it was figuring out how many banks there were, how much acreage there were in the banks, um, if any sort of study has been done for water quality in relation to the increase of forest uh, mitigation banking in each county. Um, So that was sort of the different questions we were asking depending on stakeholder goals or mm-hmm. the Senate bill goals. Okay. Did you, it sounds like you were talking to people specifically. Yeah. Yes. We called every single county in Maryland. Oh, <laughs> Multiple times. Multiple uh, times. We, we, we got in touch with planning. Or no, I'm sorry. We got in touch with uh, the forestry, forestry board. boards. Forestry and boards. And yeah. then they said, we can't help you. Talk to somebody <laughs> talk, else. <laughs> talk to planning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then we were, we were calling everybody in planning, calling them multiple times because we often got uh, referred to other people. Yeah. So there was a lot of just cold calling, mm-hmm. but it went well. I, everybody was really helpful that we were speaking yeah. with. They were, they were happy to help us out. They provided us with... Uh, they would a lot of them followed up with email with more information, or they provided us with links to ordinances and technical manuals mm. where we could find more information, mm-hmm. um, so that we could fully, to the best of our ability and to the best of that, uh, to their ability, fill out the spreadsheet that we were working on. Yeah. So that was really cool. And then this afternoon, we're actually talking to Marianne Hosney, who's the head of forestry in the DNR, who approves right. all these plans that we're going to get. Oh, great! We're an overview this <laughs> afternoon. So this this isn't uh, final finalized yet. Not yet, no. but hopefully by next week. It has to. Be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's the goal to use this for? What are we using this for? We're putting it in the forestry publication that the interns mm. worked on last summer Great. about yeah. forest forestry in Maryland, yeah. and then also for that technical study. Right, right, right. And the the name of the publication is Managing Forested Farmland. Is I think the working title. Great, excellent. Well, um, can you think of any other projects that I didn't touch on that you were involved in? We touched on the majority of what we worked on, yeah. Yeah. It was a very diverse summer. We kind of touched on a lot of different aspects, which was really cool. No, I've asked you this before, but did you expect... What did you... What? Let me ask this a little little bit differently then. What did you expect, and how did it compare to the projects you actually worked on? Either or. (laughs) So, 
I really did not know exactly what I was getting into. I had a good sense that I was going to be doing like some policy research um, and education, but I really didn't know w- about what besides yeah. agriculture in general. Yeah. Um, so it was it was it was definitely interesting because you don't think about when you think about policy change and policy development, you don't really you you think about the senators and the Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the Congress members and the people who sign things into law, but not the people who actually help do the research and do the creation. There's tons of people who are involved in every single little piece of this process. And we were, and in the policy creation and policy work realm, we obviously were just small cogs in a machine with mm-hmm. this. Because when we went to the Aquaculture Coordinating Council, for example, there was tons of different stakeholders at the table. And it was really kind of cool to see how many people are involved. The DNR... DNR police, uh, MDA, Farm Bureau, uh, harvesters themselves, mm-hmm. uh, the Hughes Center, and it was really cool to see just the amount of uh, investment that it, that goes into these projects. Yeah, right. And what about you? Yeah, I didn't realize, truth be told, how frustrating policymaking can be at times. <laughs> For sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, I always thought of it as like you think of these big agencies that really run the show and they get these studies from nonprofits or whatever, and they just base their policies on that. And I never realized that, you know, you can take, for example, the Delmarva Land and Litter Challenge. You can take this big issue about improving water quality Mm. and then get people at the table who are all stakeholders in this but have completely differing issues under this one big umbrella issue. Right, right, right. Um, And just managing everyone's expectations and addressing everyone's problems to find that middle ground can be very difficult and challenging and finding the right people to bring to the table who are going to be involved and who are going to be affected by these regulations. So it's not just these big agencies right. that are controlling different policy. So it was uh, very eye-opening. I, yeah, but I, but I hope you learned that it's not impossible. No, though. no, no, definitely no. not. Because that is difficult, but it's not impossible. Yeah, and Absolutely. I think it, it's really just getting the right people. So when we talk to um, Susan Dorsey with the Maryland Department of the Environment, it's mm. really just getting the right people to the table. And then once you get that, yeah. it's great to have you know people from two different sides. So you have environmentalists and for example, chicken poultry farmers at the same table working together. And I mm-hmm. think that's what I didn't realize that policy was so collaborative. Right. And that was really cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's one of, one of the things, if you watch the state government enough, uh, you realize that, um, on any particular issue, a lot of people have something to say about it and their views yeah. don't usually don't match each other's. Mm-hmm. So, it is a lot of give and take, um, but that's but that's great. I mean, that's a, that's an important thing um, for someone to learn. Um, you know, even just in their personal lives, looking out on the world uh, politically, especially you know, state politics, mm-hmm. local politics, and stuff like that, just to understand how the process goes. Um, so that's great. And then, last question is, what are you guys gonna do now? So you guys, when when school start again for you you you're you're a little bit earlier aren't you tori um yeah i start in the end of august but i have an orientation for that environmental clinic that i'm involved in yeah so i'm gonna start i guess immediately doing environmental clinic and doing the urban agriculture work which is really exciting and then i already have to start thinking about my job next summer so i'm looking into land land use jobs land use yeah is it's um why what did you did you plan that before this summer or did that change? Uh, 
kind of planned before the summer also kind of changed. I really liked my property class in the spring, so yeah. I knew I wanted to do something with property. And I liked the environment, and I really liked urban agriculture and learning about agricultural law and how zoning works and just planning out. I really also just like the planning aspect of things. I yeah. think I live by my planner, so I knew I was going <sighs> to be doing some sort of job that involved planning, and land use just feels like a natural fit. That's cool. So you think you're going to go into urban planning? I don't know if I'm going to go into urban planning. Um, or, or any sort of, uh, I guess, planning. Maybe. I'm looking into estates a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and oh. Yeah, so I, I'm still playing around with it a little, a little yeah. to figure it all out. But mm-hmm. I, I do really want to work, I think, directly with people. That was something I realized with this internship. I really enjoyed the policy work, but I really liked the direct marketing aspect because I felt like it was that one-on-one. You can really directly see how it's going to help. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of where I'm leaning. Great. Yeah. And uh, what about you? I am basically moving right into school as soon as I'm done with this. Um, and then school classes start, I think, the 22nd or 24th at College Park. Um, and I'll just be continuing it, like in my, my environmental science mm. degree for the next two years. Um, and as I've been doing this, I've kind of... This internship made me interested in picking up GIS as a minor, Geographic Information Systems. So yeah. I think I'm going to probably pull the trigger on that in the, in the <laughs> fall, um, which I'm kind of excited about. Um, and I'm not really... And I'm still not entirely sure what I want to do career-wise or mm. post-graduation if I want to do any form of grad school or if I want to go right into working um, yeah. or, or maybe both. I'm, I'd am i been really interested, actually, in, uh, in planning myself. So yeah. I'm considering... Uh, in the past year or so, I've been getting, I've been drifting more and more towards kind of urban planning and uh, stuff like that. So this internship, though not directly related, it was, mm-hmm. it was definitely interesting and uh, it still helped me get a sense of what I'm interested in, uh, the urban agriculture, because it was kind of like an, ur- it related to almost urban planning in yeah. a sense. I, f- I found that helpful in helping me kind of think about what I wanted to do, but I'm considering maybe a master's in urban planning or something like that. Great. So that's excellent. Yeah. Well, no, don't worry if you don't know what you want to do yet. <laughs> I am 30 and I still have no idea. <laughs> I feel like it's a constant process of just crossing things out that you don't want to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I don't want to work at McDonald's anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, all right. So um, thanks for coming in. It was great knowing you guys. Feel free to reach out to me for anything. Thanks. Um, I, I guess that's it. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. This is great. It was yeah. a great opportunity. Thank you so much for having us on the podcast and then just having us here this summer. This has been a great experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, okay, one last thing that <laughs> I want to bring up then. Because each each summer, because we work in Queenstown, Maryland, which is on the eastern shore along the Y River in the middle of nowhere. Um, there's uh, barely internet, let alone cell phone service. Uh, you both are from Baltimore. I cannot end this without bringing this up. You're both from Baltimore. Um, was it a respite or was it uh, like, what am I going to do all, <laughs> all night or all day or something like that on the weekends? I, um, I definitely found myself in some lulls on the weekends, um, but I, I enjoyed it in, in the city. I've gotten used to tons of stuff going on and it was, it was a really nice, like, it was almost a summer vacation in, in a sense on the weekends when I was hanging, I, I just got to like hang out and relax. Yeah. I went kayaking on the water once. Um, that was a ton of fun and just kind of exploring the Eastern shore. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't, this is really provided me an opportunity to actually 
explore the Eastern Shore because mm. I don't really go. I, I had the perception that the Eastern Shore was mostly like uh, farmland and Ocean City, and there's a lot more to sure. it. Sure. And yeah. so this was this was really cool to see Easton, Queenstown itself, Kent Island, um, and actually just kind of branch out Cambridge, things like that. So I had a really oh, I had yeah, a lot of great. fun with really actually like getting to know the Eastern Shore and finding things to do. That's great. So. Yeah, it was definitely a change of pace, especially coming um, off my first year of law school because I was constantly busy and constantly studying. So it was nice just yeah. to take a rest. And it's so quiet out here, so I slept great, which was lovely. Oh, sure. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's true. <laughs> I didn't think about that. Yeah, it was lovely. Um, and being on the water here and mm-hmm. taking my computer out to uh, work on the porch was great. Um, I actually have a grandmother who lives in Centerville, so I've right. been to the Eastern Shore before. But I haven't explored other areas, so I went to Oxford one weekend, which was really cool, and tried oh, Highland great. Creamery, which I cannot stop thinking about now. It was so good. I know. It's yeah. amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it was so good. Um, so just exploring the Eastern Shore more past Centerville, which is really yeah. the only place I had been. That's was cool. really cool. That's cool. I mean, I've lived on the shore for about six or seven, eight years now, and I'm still finding new places all over the place, new restaurants to go to, yeah. new things to do. Um Great seafood so. over here, too. Yes, okay. that's my yeah. favorite part. <laughs> Food's my favorite part Yeah. Uh, of any place I go to. But anyway, so, well, that's it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. See you guys later. See ya.